This morning we kick off a summer sermon series that we have labeled Scripture and Screen, in which we will unpack ways that TV shows and movies have wrestled with theological themes. The idea began the week before I started with you all two years ago when Pastor Emma and I bonded over our borderline unhealthy obsession with the early 2000s TV show The West Wing. And we joked that we should just do a whole sermon series on just that. While this summer you will get a much wider variety of entertainment than just that show, we're kicking off that series this morning by unpacking some themes from the West Wing and the ways that it invites us into broader questions of faith. Each week, you should know that you do not have to have seen the show or the particular episode, but if you choose to, each week in the weekly email and on our social media, we'll be sharing the links and clips so that you can follow along as well. But what matters is not the TV show of the week at the end of the day but the way that that show interacts with and responds to the message of Scripture. And so with that, we turn to the gospel lesson for this morning from the gospel of Matthew, the fifth chapter, verses 13 through 15. Listen now for the word of God. Jesus says to the people gathered in his sermon on the mount, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything, but must be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under a bushel basket, but on the lampstand, so that it gives light to all in the house. Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, heavenly dove, with all thy quickening power. Come shed abroad a Savior's love that it may kindle ours. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The question before us this morning is, are you a Christian? It's both a simple and a loaded question, isn't it? Of course, you're here for worship this morning, and so my hope is that Jesus Christ has had an impact in your heart and in your life in such a way that you don't miss a beat in replying, yes. Or at least you found your way here, because there's some nudging of the Spirit inside you that has caused you to want to know more. It's a question that we ask one another as part of a Christian community. We do so at baptisms. We ask it when we confirm our youth and they become members of the church. We ask it when we ordain elders and deacons like the ones that we will elect at the congregational meeting following worship. To respond, yes, I'm a Christian, is a fundamental statement of faith. It's a way to affirm what we believe and mark where we belong. 
It connects us to a community of people who share this trust and faith in Jesus Christ as a common confession. And it is worthy of celebration. But I also imagine that when I asked the question just a moment ago, some of you squirmed in your seat a little bit. And your discomfort is perhaps justified because there's also a lot underneath that question. The context matters, as does the person who's asking. If that question was asked in the first century, it mattered a great deal who was asking and why. To be a person of faith, to be salt and light, as Jesus describes, was a risky venture. In a time when Christians were regularly persecuted for their faith, responding yes came with the risk of being flogged, jailed, or martyred by Roman authorities, so much so that early followers of Christ didn't often call themselves Christians, but followers of the way. To affirm Jesus is Lord was viewed as treasonous by Romans who affirmed that Caesar was God. And yet Jesus called us to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. The early Christians' charge was to share the story of Jesus in a way that added flavor and depth to others' lives, to reflect God's love as light in a way that made others want to hear the story of Christ for themselves. But the very faith that had saved their lives, that helped them to know the peace and mercy and love of God, also put their lives at risk. In the early church, we know that Christians gathered in small communities, often in secret, to share the story of Christ. And as they traveled about the Middle East, they had developed a code to determine whether it was safe to speak to others about Jesus. The legend goes that the ichthus, the Jesus fish that often gets put on uh, the back of people's cars today, it began as a sort of ancient passcode among Christians. One person would draw an ark in the sand, and if the other person knew to complete the ark to form the fish, it was safe to share your faith with the other. This, of course, was not the first time that a code was used to determine whether one was a legitimate believer in God, a member of the community rather than an external threat. The need for these kinds of passcodes, shibboleths, as you heard in the Old Testament reading, traces all the way back to the time of judges when neighboring and often, often warring groups would attempt to infiltrate the tribes to learn their movements and prepare for battles over land. It not only mattered who you put your allegiance in and what you believed, it mattered whether you knew the code of the community. These kinds of secret handshakes were designed to protect the community from external threats and also to bind them together as one. It was a test, a test of allegiance, of faith, of belonging. And while I'm guessing that most of us don't face those same kind of external risks as a believer today, that very question, are you a Christian, can still feel like a test. 
If the question is asked when you're standing before this community of faith, one that has covenanted to walk with you, it's cause for celebration. But what if the person asking is standing on your front, front step, ringing your bell, holding a Bible, and telling you you're destined for hell if you don't respond in exactly the right way? What if the person asking is a dear friend who doesn't understand why you go to church at all? What if you're traveling in a country where Christianity is not the dominant religion? What if you're being asked by someone who doesn't affirm who God created you to be? My suspicion is that our discomfort with the question is less about our willingness to place our trust in Jesus Christ and more about our concerns of judgment from others. Who gets to decide if my faith is good enough? Who decides if I pass the test? Isn't that between me and God alone? I'm a Christian, but I'm not that kind of Christian, I've heard a number of people in this room say before. It's as if we're looking for our modern-day shibboleth, that secret passcode that helps us to know that we're in a safe place to share our faith with one another. And the TV show The West Wing takes on this very question. Through a series of interwoven plot lines about religious asylum and school prayer and the celebration of religious freedom on Thanksgiving through none other than the presidential pardoning of a turkey, the characters cast light on the ways that our faith and our freedom to practice our faith are put to the test even today. One particular episode zooms in on the story of a group of Chinese refugees who arrive in America after a grueling journey across the ocean and apply for religious asylum. The refugees tell the immigration agents that they've been persecuted because of their faith and they cannot return to their home country for fear of imprisonment or death. And by, the, by a series of events that would only happen in a television show, the question of whether to grant these individuals asylum makes it all the way to the desk of the president. The character President Bartlett and his advisors take meetings with leaders of the church and the Chinese government and immigration authorities, and everyone weighs in on the legitimacy of their claim. They're all trying to decide whether or not they're really Christian. One authority even suggests that they might feign faith in order to be granted free access to America. And suddenly, in the narration in the show, the president is faced with the responsibility of determining whether or not these individuals' faith is real, sufficient, enough. As it would surprise you none for a president, a character playing the president, he seems to delight in this position of power. And displaying his own arrogance and biblical knowledge, he says to his staff, bring one of the refugees to me. I'll see if he will say shibboleth, as if he's already decided what real faith looks like, what the passcode for true Christianity is. Placed in this position of power over another's life and faith, the show invites us, though, to ask that question, what exactly is it that makes one Christian, and how would others know? 
Is it a matter of knowing biblical facts or theological knowledge or showing acts of piety? Are you a Christian simply because you're baptized or because you live a life reflective of the gospel ruled by love? Do you have to know the books of the Bible in order or the Apostles' Creed by memory? Do you have to know the Lord's Prayer by heart? And is it trespasses or debts? Do you have to sell all your possessions and give them to the poor? Or if not, do you have to tithe to the church? Or are you simply a Christian because you have faith? What should someone else look for to know that you are a follower of Christ is the question at hand. And so the episode returns and they fly one of the refugees into Washington, D.C. and bring him to the White House. And he arrives in a suit looking totally put together, having spent three months as a stowaway, and enters the West Wing. Don't you love TV plot lines? This would never happen in real life. And President Bartlett, this devout Catholic, tries to assess the legitimacy of the man's faith and by proxy the faith of the other hundred who have traveled with him. So the episode goes something like this. Here they are sitting in the, the west wing of the White House, and he tells the man that he is here because there is a question about whether his application for asylum is valid. And so he puts him to the test. How did you become a, a Christian, he asks. And the man replies, well, I began attending a house church in Funjin, and eventually I was baptized. Okay, fair enough. President Bartlett moves on to questions of action. How, how do you practice? We share Bibles, he says. We sing hymns. We hear sermons. We recite the Lord's Prayer. We are charitable. Satisfied enough with these answers, then he asks a theological question, who is the head of your church? The head of our parish, he says, is an 84-year-old man named Wee Ling. The head of our church is Jesus Christ. And thinking that all of this checks out, he moves on to a test of biblical knowledge. Aren't you glad you didn't have to take this test? He says, can you name all of Jesus' apostles? I mean, it's, o it's okay if you can't. And the refugee recites without missing a beat, Peter, Andrew, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, Thaddeus, Simon, Judas, and James. President Bartlett looks satisfied, if not downright impressed, but the man cuts in finally and says, Mr. President, Christianity is not demonstrated by a recitation of facts. You are seeking evidence of faith, a wholehearted acceptance of God's promise of a better world. For we hold that humanity is justified by faith alone, says St. Paul. Justified by faith alone. Faith, he says, is the true shibboleth. The character aced the test in a perfect made-for-TV scene. As the president sat there trying to test his faith through merciful actions and theological acumen and biblical trivia, the real shibboleth, the real passcode, the heart of the response is a matter of faith, 
Where do we put our trust in life and in death? As Jesus shared the Sermon on the Mount, he offers a similar kind of reflection on what really matters. He shares with this crowd gathered that what matters in the eyes of God is not a test of scripture or theological acuity, but where we place our trust and how we reflect that faith in the way we live. The Sermon on the Mount opens with blessing. Blessed are the meek, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted for righteousness. These blessings that Jesus begins with are outward signs of God's transforming love, the evidence of those who have put their whole trust in God. Jesus is trying to tell us that it's not about quoting a creed from memory or acing the Bible drill. Learning the story of God matters, not so you can pass an arbitrary test or so that you can put others to the test, but so that you can see the ways that God is weaving your blessings and challenges into the grand story of the people of God. In our world today that is so filled with tribalism, where we are so divided and so quick to judge one another, the real shibboleth is not whether we can draw a line in the sand and say the password correctly. The real shibboleth is whether we can live in ways where we are salt and light, showing God's love to others. The real test is whether we reflect our faith in acts of meekness and mercy and peace. The true passcode is whether we receive the gift of faith and then reflect that faith as light reflects so that others can see God's love in us. I wonder how our world would change if rather than putting others to the test or feeling like we were put to the test, we committed our lives to showing Christ's love in all that we do. Are you a Christian? It turns out it's a matter of faith all along. May it be so.